Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning and welcome to Trinity this morning. We're glad you decided to worship with us this Sunday morning, whether you're here in person or whether you're joining us on our live stream. Uh, we're glad that you're here and we pray that you're encouraged in the Lord by what we've sang, by the, the words of our prayers, and by now as we open God's word together. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, this morning I get to lead us in our study of the Bible, and that means we're going to be continuing through our study of the book of Matthew. So if you have a copy of the Bible this morning, I invite you to take it out and turn with me to Matthew 19. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning as we go through Matthew 19. Uh, here at Trinity, we love the Bible and we practice a type of teaching called expository teaching. Uh, what that means is we want to just open the Bible and go through it and take uh, what it says in its original context and apply it to our lives today. We don't want to read our opinions in. We don't want to take the Bible and make it say what we want it to say, but we want to hear from God. We want to hear what he has to say to us uh, and then ask, how can we apply these truths to our lives today? And so most often we just open up a book of the Bible and we go through it sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph. And that's what we're doing right now in Matthew's gospel, looking at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this morning's text is a great example of why that type of preaching and teaching is so helpful, because it doesn't allow us to dodge difficult texts. So this morning, we're going to be looking at some of Jesus' teaching on divorce, which is not a particularly fun subject to talk about. It's not a particularly fun subject to hear, and it's not a particularly fun subject to preach about. It's not something that preachers get up in the morning like, let's talk about divorce today. Maybe there are some preachers who are like that, but if there are, they probably don't need to be preachers, quite frankly. It's a text that we would just as soon skip and move on, and, and if, if it were just me or Pastor Dave or Pastor Todd getting up each week and deciding, what do I want to preach on today, this is the kind of text that probably wouldn't come up very much. But if we're going through Matthew's gospel... And we just finished chapter 18 next week. You would notice if I got up here this morning and said, let's move ahead to Matthew 19 and start in verse 13. And just pretend that those first 12 aren't there. Jesus says what he says for a reason. He, he takes us through uncomfortable topics and uncomfortable passages because he knows it's for our good. This is teaching that we need to be confronted by and have our view, not just of divorce, but our view of marriage in general shaped by what it is that Jesus has to say here today. As I prepared for this text, it made me think of a, uh, an episode of America's Funniest Home Videos we were watching a few weeks ago. And in this episode, they, they, you know, a lot of times they'll play a little game on there, and their two contestants in the game were a couple who were engaged to be married after having been together, only known each other for two weeks. I remember watching this and thinking, well, that's interesting. That's a way of doing things. Now, let's be clear, there's no set length of time that you have to be together before you can get engaged to be married. The Bible doesn't give us any requirements on that front. And I've known people, went to college with some people who got engaged after just a couple of months of being together and they're still together today. But watching this couple who was plunging headforth into marriage after only knowing each other for two weeks, I'm going to go out on a limb and say they hadn't really thought very seriously about the idea of marriage. And given the number of marriages that end in divorce in our culture today, I'm going to suggest that a great many others in our culture enter marriage with too little thought and too little seriousness as well. So the question this morning is, how seriously should we take marriage? How seriously should we approach it? Well, let me ask you this. Would it shock you to know that when Jesus talked to his disciples about the seriousness and the gravity of marriage, 
their response was, well, that's a bit too much. It's probably better we just don't get married at all. Like, that's how they reacted to it. Now, why is that? Why and what does Jesus have to say to us this morning? How should it affect us as people who are married? How should it affect us as people who are single but pursuing marriage? How should it affect us as single people who are not particularly pursuing marriage? How should it affect us as people who have experienced already the pain and suffering that comes along with divorce? Well, no matter where you fit across that spectrum, there is one application that all of us simply must take from the text we're about to read this morning, and that's this. Marriage is a joy, but it's also serious business. And if we neglect that truth, we're setting ourselves up for a great deal of pain and suffering that Jesus wants to spare us. So as we look at this text this morning, let's look at it with that umbrella in mind that we are aiming today as we study what Jesus has to say to us to get serious about the idea of marriage. So let's read together Matthew 19 verses 1 through 12 and then we'll study it together. 19 verse 1 says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and we'll jump in and study it together. Father, we ask for your help, for your grace this morning as we come to your word. We want to understand what you have to say and respond rightly. And so we ask that what we know not this morning, you would teach us. What we have not this morning, you would give us. And what we are not this morning, you would make us by the power of your Holy Spirit to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so as we read that text this morning, if you've been here through our study of Matthew, you might think at first that this text sounds a little familiar. D didn't we already preach through this in Matthew? Well, the reason it sounds familiar is because this is actually an extended look at a topic that came up briefly in the Sermon on the Mount, way back in Matthew chapter 5. Remember back in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, when Jesus was in the middle of his, you have heard it said, 
But I say to you, taking the people's common understanding of God's law and of what righteousness looked like and saying, you've heard it's this, what I'm saying to you is it's this. He, he continually elevates God's expectations for what it looks like to be righteous, to be a follower of the law. And in verses 31 and 32, he does that with marriage and divorce. He says, uh, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So he said this before. He said that you've heard it said this morning, we're going to hear the Pharisees actually say it. And Jesus is going to expound on the same teaching that he gave us back in Matthew chapter 5. And even take it in a little bit of a new angle and a new direction in terms of the implications it has for people across the spectrum of life. Now, in Matthew 19, Jesus is continuing to go about his ministry, as we see here in the first two verses. Uh, he has finished these sayings that we just saw in Matthew 18, and now he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And as we've gone through the book of Matthew, we see a lot of these verses that kind of act as the connective tissue, right? That they're what string together one account, one series of sayings, one narrative with the next. And so on that front, it seems rather normal as Matthew continues to progress that he teaches it this way. But I want to point out to you, there's one important detail that we can't miss here. Because his location is changing, yes, from Galilee to Judea, but there's something that's tremendously significant. And I'm going to suggest to you that we plant it as a flagpole and allow it to color the way we read, not just this text today, but everything that's going to flow from here for the rest of the book. And that reality is this. Jesus is leaving Galilee, which is where his ministry has taken place. It's been kind of the home base of his preaching, his teaching, his ministry, his healing to the crowds. And he's heading south into Judea. And Judea is the region of Israel where Jerusalem is located. The point is this. This is a trip he will not return from. This is the last time he leaves Galilee before going to Jerusalem. This is the journey south that will culminate in his arrest, in his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection. This is a one-way journey in terms of Jesus's earthly ministry. And it's setting into motion a series of events that will lead to the crucifixion. And so as we see the Pharisees come to him with a question today, Keep in mind, this is the Pharisees accelerating their attempts to trap Jesus, to get him to say something, to discredit him in the minds of the people and allow them to get him out of the public eye and protect their own position as leaders, as teachers of the people. So see this question in verse 3 uh, as an, an acceleration of what has been going on with these tests, with this entrapment. And we know, because we know where the, the gospel is going, we know where this is heading. So they ask him in verse 3 this question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? I mean, if they're looking to set up Jesus, what better way than a gotcha question about something as personal and intimate and seriousness as the idea of marriage and divorce? And they want him to answer in a certain way that no matter what he says, they think he's going to be entrapped. He's going to look bad in the eyes of the people. Now, if you were here for our first look at divorce and remarriage from back in chapter 5, 
Maybe you remember that there were two competing schools of thought on divorce back in the Judaism of Jesus' day. Two schools of thought that the rabbis taught in the time when Jesus would have been going about his earthly ministry. And it revolved largely around how one interpreted the clause, some indecency, in Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24.1, in the Law of Moses, said, When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. It goes on from there. But the cause there is he has found some indecency in her. Now, some teachers, the more conservative wing of the rabbis, took some indecency to mean adultery as the clause that could end a marriage and lead to the certificate of divorce. Others on the more liberal wing of Judaism said, well, it could have a more broad application, which basically ended up being anything that a husband didn't like was some indecency. So if she was a bad cook and and overcooked your dinner, that was grounds for a certificate of divorce. And so this intramural debate was going on within Judaism, and the Pharisees are looking to get Jesus. So what do you think, Jesus? Which is it? Can one divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, back in Matthew, Jesus already, you know, kind of gave his take on this. And so I'm going to suggest that the Pharisees know what he's going to say. They've heard him teach. They know he, which, which side of the equation he's going to fall on. And they're hoping that it lands him in some hot water, right? They know Jesus is going to say, no, one can't divorce one's wife for any cause. I think one of the reasons that they're, they're setting him up in this way is remember what just happened to John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was just executed. Why? because of his preaching on the topic of marriage and divorce. And the fact that King Herod, who had a rather sordid history on that front, didn't like what John had to say to him. And, and neither did his, his wife, Herodias, and it ended up costing John his head. So maybe the Pharisees are thinking, we need to put Jesus out there, get him on the record, and maybe Herod will just take care of this for us like he did with John the Baptist. Maybe they're, they're going to be able to frame him as, well, he doesn't have proper respect for what Moses says in Deuteronomy 24. Whatever the case may be, they're setting him up. They think they know what he's going to say, and they think, we're going to get him. We're going to entrap him before the people. So the crux of the question is this. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And as he does so many times with the Pharisees, rather than answer, Jesus just asks them a different question altogether. He turns the conversation in a new direction. Look what he says in verse 4. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So what's Jesus doing here? A couple things to note. One, he's kind of ribbing the Pharisees a little bit, right? Who were the Pharisees? They were the teachers. They were the experts of the Old Testament law. They were the experts on the law of Moses. And they asked this question, and what's the first thing Jesus says to them? Like, haven't you read your Bible? Haven't you read your Bible? Have, not, have you not read that from the beginning this is how it was set up? So Jesus turns it back toward them, and he says, you're asking the wrong question entirely. And I want you to note as well that he answers them by pointing them to the Bible. Now this might seem kind of mundane or after all it's Jesus of course he's going to use the Bible right but I want you to think about this consistently when he's having to answer temptations and tests he does it by pointing to the scriptures he did it with the devil in the wilderness back in chapter four he's done it multiple times with the Pharisees why is that now 
Jesus is God in the flesh. And so whatever he would have said in reply would have, by definition, been God's word, right? But he points to the Bible, I believe, to give us footsteps to follow him. That when we encounter tests, when we encounter temptations, we can do the same thing. We can point to what God has said, not merely to what I think or to what you think, what our opinions are. Jesus is modeling for us the importance of listening to what God has revealed and applying that to the crises that we face. And so Jesus says here to the Pharisees, you're asking the wrong question. And what he's pointing out to them is that to see marriage and divorce as God sees them, we need to ask not about permissibility, but about purpose. Right? The Pharisees are focused on permissibility. When can someone get a divorce? Jesus said, wrong question. Ask about purpose. Why does marriage exist in the first place? And to do that, we look not at the decision of a man, we look at what God has set up and done. So Jesus quotes from Genesis 2, which focuses not on a man or a woman's decision to end a marriage, but on God's role in creating one, right? He created them from the beginning. He made them male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Who's the actor in Genesis chapter 2? Who's the one who's pushing things along? It's not man. It's not Adam and Eve. It's God. God builds this. God establishes this. And Jesus highlights two aspects of that reality in God creating a marriage, right? That there is this relationship, this close relationship that is created where each has responsibilities to the other, right? We see that in uh, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That the, the, the relationship between parent and child, which is about as intimate a relationship as you can imagine, God says marriage takes priority over that. Man shall leave his family behind and create a new family. There is this new relationship that is made that is of the utmost importance. And then the other aspect there is that the two shall become one flesh, highlighting the sexual union that that, uh, solidifies this marriage and that makes it this, this beautiful mystery that God talks about where the two really become as one. And what Jesus says there in verse 6 is they're no longer two, but they're one. Why? Because they decided? No, because God has instituted this covenant. And then Jesus gives words that are going to be really familiar that we've probably all heard uttered at marriages, right? What God has joined together, let not man separate. That's the crux of it in Jesus' view, isn't it? If God's the one who puts marriages together, who are we to think that we can split them up? What God has joined together no man should aim to dissolve. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're looking at permissibility, you need to look at purpose. Why does marriage exist? You're asking the wrong question entirely. He takes their their line of questioning and he turns it all the way around. And they are completely undeterred by it, right? Verse seven, maybe they think, all right, we've got him. Now let's ask about, well, you apparently don't like and, and don't respect what Moses said, right? Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Well, Jesus, if that's so true, why does our Bible say this? Why did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? 
And Jesus is going to answer that question right here in verse 8. He says to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. You notice the language that they use here? The Pharisees, when they talk about Deuteronomy 24, what's the word that they use? Why then did Moses command this to happen? Jesus doesn't use the command word. He says, because you're stubborn, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. He didn't command you to do it. What Jesus is saying is that we live in a fallen world, right? We know in, De- in Genesis chapter 2, God created humanity. He created Adam and Eve. He created this first marriage and marriage itself to be this. But we have broken his world. We have broken his creation. And that brokenness from sin, from our rebellion against God, affects even this most intimate of relationships, even marriage. And so God gave these set of stipulations in his law on how to handle divorce when it comes about. That's what Jesus is saying. Moses allowed you because of your hardness of heart. But from the beginning, it wasn't so. Moses gave you, God gave you these rules on how to deal with divorce when it happens. But this was not the plan from the beginning. This is not God's command. This is not God's intent. A really helpful illustration for, for thinking about this I found from a British pastor and scholar N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright says this. He says, just as a car is made to drive safely on the road, not to skid around colliding with other cars, so marriage was made to be a partnership of one woman and one man for life, not something that could be split up and reassembled whenever one person wanted it. Moses didn't say, as it were, when you drive your car, this is how to have an accident. Rather, when you drive a car, take care not to have an accident, but if tragically an accident occurs, this is how to deal with it, right? All of us have cars, and those cars are built with safety features in case of an accident, right? Your car has airbags. Your car has uh, certain structural things built into it to deflect impacts away from the people who are inside of it. Cars are built with accidents in mind, but cars are not built to be wrecked. The purpose of your car is not to go crash into somebody else. It's not why it exists. That's the same misunderstanding that the Pharisees have of marriage. They're looking at it like it's a car that is meant to be driven around recklessly and crashed into whoever you want. Jesus says, That's not the plan. God built in some safety features because stuff is going to happen in a broken and fallen world that I've come to redeem. But that's not why this was built in the first place. And so Jesus then forcefully declares that in his kingdom, Deuteronomy 24 isn't our guiding passage in understanding divorce. Genesis 2 is. It's in what happened from the beginning. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Uh, Pastor and scholar Craig Blomberg has put it this way. He says, God did not originally create people to divorce each other. And he therefore does not intend for those who he recreates the community of Jesus' followers, to practice divorce. Divorce is a fact of life in the fallen world that we live in, but it wasn't God's design in creation. Why has Jesus come to earth? To bring about a new creation, a new people, to redeem us from our sins. 
And Jesus says, just as divorce isn't part of the original creation design, it's not part of the design of recreation. So for those who are following Jesus, this isn't the path that we take. Now, tragically, there are going to be exceptions, right? Just as Deuteronomy 24 laid out, here's how you approach it when these things happen. So Jesus gives this clause here, except for sexual immorality. There are going to be times in a fallen world and even in the church, even in, among people who profess to be Christians, where we fall short and where things happen that break the covenant of marriage and that, that it's not a command, you've got to go ahead and divorce, but Jesus allows for that to happen in certain circumstances. And I think it's interesting to notice that the circumstances that, that Jesus in the New Testament give us that are the exceptions that can break that covenant are actually the two or when the two things that he highlighted in the marriage bond are broken, right? Remember back up here in verse uh, 5 as he calls back to Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He calls out this relationship that is created in marriage as one of the big things, and then the, the one flesh union, the sexual union that comes with that. And so what he says here is if that is broken, then... Divorce is permitted, not commanded, but allowed. So here he says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul is going to give another exception where if an unbelieving spouse abandons their partner, they are not bound to them in marriage. What's that looking at? It's when that new relationship that is created, that leaving the father and mother holding fast to the wife, when that is broken, the marriage is broken as well. The exceptions are when the things that God has set up are broken by one of the parties. That's where the New Testament says, in this fallen world, divorce may happen. There's other painful circumstances like abuse that are not directly in view here, but where we can often have to have these hard conversations. But what Jesus is teaching here doesn't allow is for us to take marriage lightly. That's the point he's making to the Pharisees. It's a danger that they were guilty of, that his culture was guilty of, and it's a danger that our culture today is just as guilty of. We've got to move from what is permissible to end a marriage to what is God's purpose in marriage to begin with. And that will change everything about the way we not only approach marriage from the beginning, but how we approach the difficulties that we encounter in a marriage. So we've got to move from permissibility to purpose, and then we need to consider how do we respond to this? When we're confronted with this teaching, what do we need to do in response? Well, here in a few minutes, we'll get into the specifics of how we respond if we're married, if we're single, if we're divorced. But first off, we've got to understand something overarching all of those situations, and that is this, that the response to what Jesus has to say here is gravity, Right? There should be a gravity to marriage. There should be a weightiness to marriage. This is serious business. If your response to what you've just heard from Jesus here is to say something like, wow, that's pretty intense, then you've probably got the right idea. That's the reaction that is appropriate. After all, that's exactly how the disciples react, right? Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case with a man and his wife, then it's better not to marry. Who can, who can hold up to that? That's serious, Jesus. 
If that's the case, you know, singleness actually looks pretty good right now. If marriage is that serious, then the disciples say, maybe it's better not to marry at all. So they get it. They get, Jesus, you're saying something about marriage that's far above what we've ever thought about. It's far above what our culture tends to hold it to. And so if we understand Jesus rightly this morning, we're going to respond the same way. We're going to have the same reaction. Marriage is not just something that you give it a shot and see how it goes. It's not a relationship of convenience to be enjoyed while it's fun and fulfilling and cast aside when it's not those things anymore. Marriage is a lifelong covenant. Marriage is a relationship that will both give to you and demand from you far more than you could ever imagine at the outset. Think about that. Marriage is something that will both give to you and demand from you far more than you can imagine at the outset. It's interesting to note just how Jesus responds to the disciples' comment. So they say, if that's the case, it's just better not to marry at all. And you'd kind of half expect Jesus to be like, you know, calm down a bit, guys. It's not as bad as you think, right? You know, it's, it, it, it's all right. You'd expect him to kind of soft pedal their reaction. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He leans into it. And he actually talks about how marriage is not for everybody. That's the sum total of these last few verses is this is not something that everybody can live with. So he starts talking about eunuchs, those who for various reasons, as we're about to see, do not pursue marriage. For some, Jesus says this is a physical defect, a physical limitation they've had from birth, verse 12. For some, this constraint was put on them by others to whom they were in service. But there's a third group as well, Jesus says, those who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. What he's referring to here is not the physical action that we might associate with the word eunuch, but rather a decision that is made to set aside marriage in order to more fully pursue the things of the kingdom of God. There's a decision to set aside marriage to more fully pursue the things of the kingdom. That's what he means by this, those who are eunuchs, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul, right? That's probably the most common um, thing that comes to mind biblically when we think about this idea. Paul talks about his singleness giving him freedom in his apostolic ministry. The fact that he was able to do more for the sake of the kingdom of God because he was single. He didn't have other cares and concerns that were weighing him down. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says this. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So in other words, Paul's saying, I wish everybody could be single like me. And he's going to give us some of the reasons for that here in just a moment. But he says, but everybody's different. Everybody's been given different gifts from God. Some are one way, some are another. Some are single, some are married. Listen to what he goes on to say. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. 
And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul's unpacking that those who are married have a lot of different responsibilities, a lot of different cares that they have to think about, how to to please and take care of their spouse, their families, their children. He says those who aren't married don't have that. They can have a single-minded devotion to God that's not possible for those who are married. And for a long time, and by a long time, I mean about 2,000 years, the church has really struggled with how to implement this teaching and how to think about this, right? What is it that Paul really means? Is singleness a higher virtue? This is kind of what's in view of the Roman Catholic Church that would say singleness, celibacy is the ideal. They require it of their clergy. So is is that the case? Is singleness like this higher virtue? Is that what Paul means here? And, And those who are married are just, you know, that's the people who really can't spiritually cut it in the big leagues, right? It's not wrong, but it's, it's not as good as, as being single and pursuing God's, God's things there. Or if you were to look at Western Protestantism, if you were to look at us as Protestants, you'd probably get the opposite idea, that marriage is, is the normal, expected way to go, and singleness as a gift, well, it's, it's there, it exists, but it's like a freakishly rare thing. Like Nobody really does that, Right? The answer from Jesus here is that both paths, marriage and singleness, are a high calling to those who are called to them, right? Marriage is a high, the highest calling to those who are married. Singleness is the highest calling to those who are single. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Hear this command, Jesus says, in the context of where you're at. Not everybody can receive it. Not everybody's going to be married. Not everybody is going to enter into this relationship. Some are going to be single to pursue the kingdom of heaven. The answer from Jesus is that both are serious business, right? We've seen how serious marriage is, right? He's just talked about that for the past 10, 11 verses. But don't miss the implication that's present in verse 12 as well about singleness, right? There are some who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What's the implication here? Is that the kingdom of heaven, Jesus' kingdom, is so important that giving up marriage to more fully pursue it makes perfect sense in Jesus' worldview, right? It's not a crazy sacrifice to make. Jesus is saying these people who do that are doing a good thing. Not that people who get married aren't doing a good thing, but both have great seriousness. Going back to our our scholar Craig Blomberg, he summarized it this way. He said, if many Roman Catholics have overly exalted celibacy as an ideal, most Protestants have drastically undervalued it. Christian singles need much more support from their married friends and their churches who must value them as equally significant members of the body of Christ. The point here is that whether you're married or whether you're single, this matters. And we all have a part to play in Christ's body. We all have responsibilities that we've been given. To those who are married, take your marriage with the utmost seriousness because this is worship. 
This is the way to please God, to glorify him. To those who are single, pursue the kingdom of God. You have a special opportunity that not everybody does, so don't waste it and pursue Christ with all your heart. Whether you're married or whether you're single, Jesus calls your marriage or your singleness to be under the banner of his kingdom. And only under that banner will your marriage or your singleness find its true meaning, find its true purpose, and find its ultimate fulfillment. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So now let's get specific. How do we apply this overarching truth, the gravity of marriage, the seriousness we need to take it with, understanding the purpose for which it was given, how do we apply that across the spectrum of our situations and where we're at? So first up, let's make the obvious application to married people. If you're married, are you taking your marriage as seriously as Jesus talks about here? Right? If our reaction is the gravity of marriage... For those of us who are married, are we taking our marriages as seriously as Jesus talks about here? Where do you need to lay aside your desires to better love and serve your spouse rather than expecting them to meet all your needs and wants? That's the trap Jesus is warning us against here, right? You pursue marriage and then when when something goes wrong, eh, you can walk away. No, 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 no. Our job as a spouse is to sacrifice our desires for the good of our spouse. Where do you need to do that in your marriage? When you experience conflict and trouble in your marriage, and you will, right? That's a fact of life when two sinners get married in a fallen world, no matter how wonderful your spouse is. When you experience conflict and trouble, how will the high view of marriage Jesus has given us here affect that? How will it change the way you respond and face trouble in your marriage? How can you work through conflict rather than running or hiding from it, right? That's the worldly response is when conflict comes, either pretend it's not there and just bury it, or I'm out. I don't want to deal with this. It's a mess. But Jesus calls us to work through those things. With one another. It's not a coincidence that Matthew brings this account up right after we just spent a lot of time in chapter 18 talking about what? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is going to be a crucial part of any marriage. And that's why it falls right here. Now, in a marriage, these principles, these problems could manifest in 20,000 different ways. You need help figuring this stuff out, you need someone to talk to. Welcome to the fight. And we would love, our pastoral team would love to start a conversation to help you work through these things and know how can you apply these things and come out stronger on the other side. What if you're listening to this and you've experienced the pain of divorce? You've been down this road that Jesus warns us not to go down. Well, first up, you need to know that the mistakes that you or your former spouse, or both of you have made in the past, do not put you beyond redemption. And they don't prevent God from weaving something beautiful from your story in the future. Jesus gives us this high calling. Jesus elevates the seriousness of our sins, divorce being one of them. But he doesn't do that 
like I think a lot of times we have the idea as a God who's sitting back like, shame, shame, shame on you. Get it together, people, right? Aren't you listening to what I've told you? No, Jesus comes, he elevates the seriousness of our sin, and then he takes it upon himself and he dies to save us from our sin, to redeem us from our sin. Your sin painful as it may be, doesn't need to define your future because Christ has come and says, cast your cares upon me for I care for you. If anyone puts their trust in him, if they confess their sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. This is why he has come. So if you've experienced divorce and you hear something like this and the guilt just crushes you, know that that's not the end of the story. That's not why Christ has come to just simply pile a burden on you that you can't deal with. He's come to help you to recognize your burden so that you might cast it on him, that he might take it away. If you've experienced divorce, whether your future or your present is one of remarriage or singleness, you can pursue Christ all the same. These same principles that we're giving to the married and we're going to give to the single people apply to you. Your future starts now, and God can work something beautiful in your life despite your story. Now, maybe you need help untangling past hurts, figuring out how they affect what's best for you in the moment or in your future. Let's talk about that. Let us know. We would love to sit down and walk through some of these things with you. These issues with marriage are so personal are so deep-seated and they touch so much of our lives that a lot of times this is an area where where counseling is helpful to figure that out, whether that's for one person or for both. And we want to be a family, a church family, that walks walks through these things with one another. Now, what if you're single? What if you're single and desiring and pursuing marriage? Well, my question for you is, In your pursuit of marriage, as you think about these things, as you approach these things, are you pursuing marriage with the kind of gravity that Jesus is describing here? Are you pursuing marriage with the kind of gravity that Jesus is describing here? And does your dating life reflect that? Does the way that you go about dating reflect a heart that has this type of view of marriage? Or do you look more like that couple I referenced on AFE way way back that was like, yeah, we met two weeks ago. We're going to get married in a week. Does your pursuit of marriage reflect Jesus's view of the gravity of marriage? What if you're single and you're not pursuing marriage? Whether just not at the moment or whether you feel like, you know, I'm probably going to live my entire life in singleness. The question for you is whether for a time or for a lifetime, Are you using your singleness for the sake of the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, Paul says, you have a unique opportunity. Doesn't make you better than the married people, just like it doesn't make the married people better than you. But you have a unique opportunity to serve God in a way that other people don't. You have a tremendous amount of freedom. Are you leveraging that for your own comfort and enjoyment? Or are you leveraging that for the glory of God and the pursuit of his kingdom? Don't waste your marriage. Don't waste your singleness, whatever time and season of life you might be in.
church, all of us, every umbrella that we just talked about, how are we encouraging one another in our marriages? How are we encouraging one another in our singleness? How are we as a church family displaying the weight of these matters in a way that matches Jesus' words here? Right? Your marriage is not just your business. Your singleness is not just your business. Just like every other area of your life as part of the community of believers, it's not just about you. So how are we encouraging one another to be a better husband, to be a better wife, to be a better single person? You don't have to be married to encourage someone in their marriage. Just like you don't have to be single to encourage someone in their singleness. I think that part's easy because even if you're married, you were single at one point, right? So we all know what it's like to be single and we feel like we can give advice to our single friends. Single people, you can give advice to your married friends, right? Most of the teaching in the New Testament about marriage that we think about was written by who? Paul, a single person, right? Most of the profound texts that we preach at weddings and that we use to encourage one another in marriages were written by somebody who was single. Obviously, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but I'm trying to make the point to you that you don't have to be married to encourage people in their marriages, to be better followers of Christ in their marriages. So church, how can we help our marriages in the church to be better? And how can we help single people in the church to be more godly and to focus their singleness on the kingdom of heaven? And how can we show that we all are valued? We don't fall into the trap of celibacy is the ideal. We don't fall into the trap that if you don't get married, you're, you're somehow deficient. All have a part to play. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And then finally, if all this sounds new or strange to you, maybe you're approaching this, on the outside looking in of Christianity, and you think, that's different. It sounds pretty intense. I'm not sure that I I know what I'm going to do with that. Let me say to you that Jesus' view of marriage will never make sense to you until you first make sense of Jesus. Jesus' view of marriage will never make sense to you until you first make sense of Jesus. Not as a religious icon, not as a good teacher, but as God in the flesh as one who came to save you from your sins and shortcomings, not simply scold you for them. Have you met Jesus Christ? And that's a conversation we would love to have with you. Talk to one of our pastoral team. If you're watching via the live stream, send us a message, send us an email. We'd love to start a conversation to talk to you about what does it mean to follow Jesus? Why could it be that we hear such strong such serious teaching on something as personal as marriage and divorce like this and say, this is good. This is so beautiful and wonderful and helpful. What is it about Jesus that has captured our attention as Christians? We'd love to share that with you and to start that conversation. No matter where you find yourself this morning, Jesus's words matter. May we all walk away from this text and into the rest of our weeks with an elevated view of the seriousness the gravity, and the wonder of marriage, and the God who created it. Let's pray.